Welcome to DJ Grandpa's Crypt, the podcast of Kickstarter, the crowdfunding website. Each week, I interview real people with honest dreams. Today is Monday, October 7th, 2013. On this day in history, in 1955, Allen Ginsberg read his poem, Howl, for the first time during a poetry reading at Sixth Gallery in San Francisco. The poem met with immediate success and helped to define the Beat Generation poets. In the 1960s, many aspects of the Beat Generation were incorporated into the hippie counterculture. Hello, I'm Patrick of Applied Sunshine, and I've been working with the solar energy industry and trying to get it to power our lives for the past 12 years. I pulled a solar collector off of a rooftop uh, at, a, at a home here, and uh, I brought the, the solar collector down to my backyard, and I started tinkering with it. You know, I'm kind of a do-it-yourself. Hello, DJ Grandpa. Hello, Patrick. Along, How I are you doing? Doing well, thank you. Yeah, the ghost son. Good name. Yeah, that was a process, getting the right name. Tell you what, I had about three years to play around, man. I have about 300 different names in a spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I give a little too much thought to things sometimes. but uh, You settled on the right choice, 300 to 1, and you chose the right one. I stumbled into the technology 10 years ago and then, you know, have been playing with it uh, with a, a different variety, a much more cumbersome, much more challenging unit to cook with. Right. And I always thought, wow, this is an idea worth working on. And uh, I didn't know where to go with it, exactly what direction to go with it. And then um, kind of had an aha moment about three years ago. And uh, the last three years has been, you know, much more of a, a full-time, you know, digging in. Let's get right. this up. Let's get it to market and, and see what it can do. But what's that aha moment? I was at a uh, solar expo out in Portland, Oregon. And right. uh, there was a gentleman tabling with a demonstration unit sitting on the table uh, demonstrating evacuated tube solar hot water heating technology, and the tubes were two feet long instead of the previous units that I had taken off rooftops that were six feet long. Right. And so a six foot tube was you know pain in the butt to work with and to ship and to you know to sort of commodify. And the two foot unit was like ah okay that's the size I need to be working with to make this a viable product you know to make it something that's portable and easy to use. Now, I really like the ghost sun. I think it's cool. I'm always into solar. I'm always into science. You know? Yeah, I am. I am. All of that is the truth. And I just think your product is totally cool, man. I'd like to have one on my back deck and experiment with it, play around with it. Now, how has the Kickstarter community been treating you? Because you seem to be raising money pretty well on your own. I couldn't be more grateful for the Kickstarter community. Um, we're getting a lot of great advice, uh, sort of recipe ideas. and I'm thinking you need to start a recipe book, man. We're compiling that, you know, as we speak. Yeah, that'll probably be the next thing that we'll want to we'll release to our customers. If I need to cook a meal right now, I'm, I'm about to leave my podcast. I want to go outside and cook some hot dogs. How long is it? Well, hot dogs probably not a good example because anybody can cook hot dogs pretty quickly <laughs> but, <laughs> but but an average meal how long would it take to cook on the go sun if you go out in your back porch and you set up your oven right now you give it about 10 minutes to preheat right. and that oven that go sun stove will be running over 300 degrees in, in roughly 10 minutes then you know you fill up the cooking tray pop it inside the tube 20 minutes you'll have a good hot meal 
If it's uncooked meats, for example. Yeah, it's going to be meat. Let's say you're doing ground beef and you could do like two, two and a half pounds of ground beef you know, rolled up in a hot dog tubular fashion versus right. a patty. You want to give those, you know, more like uh, half an hour to 45 minutes because, you know, it's going to take a little bit longer for the heat to get down into the center of that meat. But that's not that different from, you know, what you can do in your own conventional oven. But the selling point, you're telling me the selling point, what the video is saying, the selling point, no wood, no charcoal, no, no flammables <laughs> as far as fuel or anything like that. This idea that we're talking about right there in your backyard is one thing. Why not? walk on down into Central Park and do it anywhere, You go on down to the beach, put it in the trunk, take it to the kid's soccer game, right. you know, break it out anywhere. I have children. I have a conventional grill in the backyard, and I'm always worried about either my children or the dogs touching it or something because it, it does get so hot. What about with your invention? What we've utilized here with the evacuated tube it is uh, essentially perfectly insulated from the outside or the surface. The heat inside, being over 550 degrees at times, will not be felt on the outside. So it's always safe to the touch. Obviously, the cooking tray, which is inserted into the inner portion of the tube, that gets hot. You know, right. It gets real hot, but that is fairly intuitive and fairly easy to keep that part away from a child. So we come across this type of thing all the time when I'm cooking outdoors. I'm never worried about it unless I see a kid starting to pull the tray out. And at that point, I'm going to say something like, hey, be careful, you're going to heat yourself up there. Yeah, or just get away. You or just knock the kid out the way. Get out of the way. <laughs> it's hot. But what we want to do is encourage children to play around with this technology. <laughs> um, we created the GoSun Mini to be sort of like a like a tester kit or something right. that, that you can experiment with your child, you know. I see on your video that you have an aspect as far as helping out the developing world. Would you like to tell us about that a little bit? I think that's the part that excites me the most about the GoSun stove is that we're aiming to reduce pressures on health, respiratory illnesses that are typically affecting women and children who are cooking with solid fuels, wood and charcoal. Typically, they're cooking indoors, and it's one of the largest causes of death in the world. And it also almost enslaves these women. Hi, I'm Julia Roberts. Did you know that one of the deadliest threats facing women and their families around the world today is right inside their own home? Would you believe that the simple act of cooking is responsible for two million deaths globally each year? This is because close to 3 billion people still rely on solid fuels, such as wood, to cook their food every day. When burned in open fires, these types of fuels emit a toxic smoke that fills homes and communities the world over. There uh, is a great effort, largely Searching supported by the United Nations, called the Global Alliance for Clean Cookstoves. So we're partnering with the Global Alliance for Clean Cookstoves to bring our solar cookstove to folks that, that really need it. Solar cooking has not done really well around the globe based on the fact that most solar cookers are slow, bulky, and sometimes they're dangerous. Our technology is neither of those things. It's very quick, it's very efficient, and it's safe. How much does it weigh? Our current model weighs about three and a half pounds. It's a small but mighty little package. The World Health Organization considers smoke from dirty stoves to be one of the five most serious health risks 
that face people in poor developing countries. Nearly 2 million people die from its effects each year, more than twice the number from malaria. And because the smoke contains greenhouse gases such as carbon dioxide and methane, as well as black carbon, it contributs to climate change. There are other Hillary Clinton's been a big well. effort in leading in the, the awareness. It's an issue of epic magnitude. For anyone out there who is interested in technology, like I am, for anyone out there who loves solar stuff or just wish you had solar products that actually worked, go to kickstarter.com and check out Go Sun. That's G O S U N, all one word. And if you can't find it there, go to djgrandpa.com and we will provide links for Patrick and his company. Dude, I just want to say thank you very much for taking the time to just give me the time of day to do the interview. Likewise, DJ Grandpa, this has been a pleasure. I'm Steve Casalino, a product designer and co-creator of Nixter. Inspired by my son, Nicholas. Hello! Nixter is a collection of educational toys and interactive games designed to help young children develop fine motor, cognitive, and counseling. Now, your toys, uh, this whole Nixter campaign, it's beautiful, man. Uh, the toys, I mean, the way you did the animation on the thing. You got Now, you do have the, um, the prodigy Nick himself when you're laughing. He looks like he's being paid to, you know, say, say yes or say hello at a certain time. That's the only complaint I have. He looks like he's being paid. <laughs> well, we did a few takes, and so he was very patient. For a seven-year-old man, he did great, so it was, it was fun. It was cool. How long have you been developing these toys? It's been about two years. I mean, since Nicholas was six, he and I uh, sketch a lot together. He likes to sketch. I like to sketch. So we'll sketch characters in different worlds. We started when he was young, sketching even characters out of Wow Wow Wubsy and Yo Gabba Gabba, and then doing our own characters in our own worlds. Now he's older where we're sketching a lot about sports, so sketching football and baseball dudes. Man, I wish you hadn't brought up that Wow Wow Wubsy. I love that cat. I love that cat, man. <laughs> I love that cat. Great, right? I used to watch him like every night, man. One of my kids, he wouldn't go to sleep without call, you know, and I used to call him Mr. Grumpus and stuff. And, <laughs> and one time I was at, um, one time I was at the Washington Post and they were like something about, um, they were, they were talking about Beyonce and I was like, yeah, man. And she was just on Wild Wild Wubsy. Did you know that? And they, they just ignored That's... me because they were like, Wow Wow who? <laughs> I was like, never mind, man, never mind. Okay, what's your sales pitch on these toys, man? How are you pitching it? I know you're in the Kickstarter community and you're out there fighting every day and you're shaking the trees, trying to motivate the crowd. Come on, man, tell me about these toys. First off, I mean, the, the toys themselves, they're educational in that they really focus on cognitive play or constructive play. So children are working on memory and putting shapes together in a sequential order. They're, they're working on planning and logic. And right. that constructive play, it's not you know unique. It's around that idea and concept. I mean, kids build their toys and play with them all the time. But what's unique and innovative about our collection is that it's actually the app as well and the way the app engages children and connects or reconnects children back to their actual physical toys. 
Is it one of those, um, what's it called? Something reality, something type of apps? Well, the app, well, here with the app, actually, just take a step back. The way uh, I got the idea with the app was I went to a birthday party, dinner party with Nick for one of his friends, and there were like eight or nine kids there. And out of those eight kids were playing on either an iPhone or an iPad. Even there were a set of twins who were like one and they were playing on their parents' iPhone so the parents could eat. And there and then I knew that kids, in order to engage kids and be relevant right now, you needed to be digital in that digital world. So there's a parallel play, a co-play on the digital world. I don't know if there's a specific name for it, but the interaction or interactivity is what's key. And what the app does, the kids play on the app and then they say, hey, you know, I have some cool toys to have fun and play with as well. So again, it reinforces the physical toys the kids have. You know that all those things, those iPods and iPads, and you know they're just glorified televisions. You know, you know that, don't you? I agree with you, but the televisions tend to be more passive, whereas at least in an, in an iPad or iPhone, in an app activity like our activities, they're much more interactive. So kids are figuring things out. They're counting. They're matching shapes, just like the toys. You, know, you match shapes. Right. Uh, you do counting. You, you identify colors. Well, there's four toys, so I can talk more about the toys. There's the animals or wag animals, wagon animals. There's the puzzle truck, the sequence train, and uh, the firefighter truck. What about the flying saucer, man? I, I gotta have one of those. Man. <laughs> come on, man. We're not, there is, come on. There's no flying saucer. I told you I watched this, man. What about the aliens, right? It ends with them. It's sweet, the playground. Yeah, they're, right. they're in the works, man. They're in the making. One by one. You know, you gotta build one toy at a time. You're right. I'm sorry, to, man, to be all pushy, man. <laughs> no, it's all good. But the toys themselves. So if you remember that, this, this is going back decades. It's been around forever. That Tupperware toys, that sphere that was red and blue came in halves. And you had those little yellow plastic shapes like a triangle or a square so yeah. that would fit in the holes of the sphere in the slots. Right, I remember pull, that. Pull the sphere apart and get the, the yellow parts out. So I took that idea of shape sorting. And the characters themselves are shapes. So the shapes, you identify the shape, which a kid playing with the uh, animal, and he would match it with the corresponding shape on the wagon. So it's a plug and play. And the app works the same way, where the wagons are locked. A children will identify the shapes, match it with the wagon shape, and then unlock the wagon. Now, that's with the firefighters as well. They're different shapes, and the children will match the shapes of the firefighters and plug them into the firefighter truck. Now, the sequence train and the puzzle truck, they're puzzle blocks, almost like a piece of puzzle, children will have to basically build their toy one by one, block by block. And the train, it's different shaped blocks that are numbered one through four. So the nice thing about the app is that, okay, the toy is made and it's four parts and that's it forever. But the app, it's infinite and endless. It gives you an endless number of combinations for the kids. So you can have in our train activity, we have counting one to five train parts then one to 10 with 10 train parts, and then even the alphabet. So the train keeps going on and on. It's endless. And same with the puzzle truck. Children identify the different truck pieces, and they match the colors, and they join up and build their truck. And you have five parts for the truck, 10 parts, and it goes on and on. So again, we're reinforcing shape matching, colors, counting, and the alphabet. And uh, it's been really great to see, and uh, children having a lot of fun while while they play and learn while they play. And for anyone out there who's interested in toys, who has children, who loves toys, who loves Wow Wow Wubsy, and I'm so glad that I've finally been able to admit <laughs> my love for Wow Wow Wubsy on a program, man. Oh, good, I've been man. waiting for that forever, man. Because someone told me they were like, "No, don't, don't, 
don't say that you love Wow Wow Wubsy. <laughs> You'll make it sound too silly. But DJ Grandpa loves Wow Wow Wubsy, and I love these toys by Nixter, inspired by the Nickens himself. So go to <laughs> kickstarter.com and type in Nixter. That's N-I-C-K-S-T-E-R, and you'll see an incredible video. And if you can't find it there, go to djgrandpa.com, where it's a kid's wonderland of play and excitement and all of that i i, I don't know if that's true but I, I felt like i had to say it because christmas is not too far around yeah, man the toys will be here for the holiday season they exactly will? man oh, cool. the toys will be here in time for the holidays and you have international shipping on there i've seen several programs lately people complaining about no international rates man so i'm glad you did well, that. well we included it as an option if you want to i mean it's not it's expensive to ship stuff out there but we want to at least have that option that people give them the choice steve thank you for coming on the show well, thanks a lot, DJ Grandpa. I really appreciate the time and the support. It's awesome. Thank you, man. Stay cool. Hi. Eric Bryan is the second at Monkey Finger Games. And first, I'd like to thank you for watching. Now that we got that out of the way, I'd like to tell you about our newest game, Corporations. Corporations is a game that allows you to manage and take over corporations without all those years of hard work. Now, is this game any well, fun? Let me show you I always ask play. people that, actually, because sometimes they go over the mechanics of the game a great deal, and it feels like what's left out is, is the game fun or not? We first designed it, we designed it with just the cards, not the corporations, just so we can test out the mechanics. Right. And we found the game wasn't that much fun with just the cards. But once you put the corporations in, it, that's when the, the real fun started happening. The part that we didn't really even foresee with it was people really getting attached to their corporations and then going back and trying to get them again. Right. So at least the people I've played with, they've had a lot of fun with it. You know, They've actually for like pushed back the idea of, of winning the game just so they can make sure they get their favorite corporation in their hand. I guess I thought it was funny that it, it almost seemed like your corporation in the game was almost like a wild card. It had some extra power, so... I thought that was kind of funny. That one right there was kind of a joke because the last game I designed, I kept winning when I would do the demos, and people kind of started saying that it was a little unfair for some reason. So I, I created that corporation with a special ability basically only for me and the people working for me. So that way, you know, it'd be on its face, but it's only if we get the card when we draw it. Now, how many people can play this game? It can play at minimum two, but it's, uh, it's at its best, I would say, with four people. And I see that it's not like Monopoly. The main point of the game is to be a fast, fun, easy to pick a piece to understand game for not just high-end gamers, but also for families. Right. Me personally, I have a six-year-old that I, I play games with all the time, and this is a game that he can actually pick up and understand. And that's really kind of what I'm going for, at least right now with my, my games. So you're trying to design more family-oriented games that could go from small children to adults. Exactly. A game that you could play with your friends as much as you could play with your kids or with, you know, somebody who maybe not likes certain mechanics. This is a game that's very easy and there's really not a lot of mechanics here that people dislike, per se. It seems like you are a new gaming company trying to get a foothold, trying to get a start on Kickstarter. Is that true? To be honest, I think that without companies like Kickstarter, we wouldn't really get to get games like this into your hands. I still be making these games and be playing them with my friends but i don't think i would ever really venture out to 
put them on the marketplace if it wasn't for having an easy way to show people what I can do, what I can make. And for the price it is, and also for the mechanics, I, I don't think that it's really that hard of a choice, especially if you've played it or if you, you look at the artwork to really make the leap to get it. That's right. I think I saw the early bird specials like $9. So it, it is an affordable game. There mm-hmm. are games on Kickstarter and products on Kickstarter that are much more expensive. So, yeah, so I believe that is in your favor. Uh, let's see. Um, you know, if I haven't done a good job of telling how or, or getting you to answer how corporations is played, could you just tell me in a synopsis how do you play corporations? Corporations is a game where you take uh, your cards in your hand, and they represent basically your holdings, what you're using to take over corporations, and you use those cards to attack your friends and family's corporations, and then basically bring them into your your area, your portfolio, your holdings. And you do this because these corporations give you special abilities, but also because when you get the certain amount, for instance, a four-person game, you need seven, and you get those seven corporations, you win the game. The great thing about this game, I think, is that the mechanics simple that a kid can pick it up, but also there's little hidden gems in a lot of the cards, a lot of um, humor that maybe a child won't get, but an adult that plays it with them will, will see and chuckle. For anyone out there who likes family games, this is one that is not that hard to learn, and it doesn't take like two days to play. It's called Corporations. If you'd like to check it out, go to kickstarter.com. And if you can't find it there, go to djgrandpa.com and we'll post links for Eric and his game, Corporations. Eric, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, DJ Grandpa. There's a worldwide revolution going on. And my opinion, young generation of white, black, brown, whatever else there is, you're living at a time of extremism, a time of revolution, revolution, revolution. Hello. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you? Good, thanks. Now, um, Tina, what part do you do for the film? I'm the producer, and Deanna's the director. And let's see, the name of the film, the name of the film, United Skates. Yes, that's right. How long have you guys been working on this project, putting it together? Okay, so this is Diana. We actually started filming roller skating over a year ago, but for a different project. We were looking at how in New York City there are actually no rinks left. The one in Brooklyn closed in 2007. And so basically there's all these skaters in New York City and the five boroughs that don't really have a place to skate unless they go to the bottom of Staten Island, out to Long Island, or out to New Jersey. And so we were kind of looking at how the disco days were over and skating was kind of disappearing and at the end of its road. And uh, in doing so, we discovered that we were really wrong. And there was a huge, vibrant community of skaters. They had just kind of gone underground. And so we shifted and started making a separate film, which is this film, United Skates, and uh, have been following these skaters now across the country for about four months. And we've gone to Chicago and Detroit and New Jersey and New York and Virginia and Atlanta. Baltimore. And Baltimore. (laughs) (laughs) All just to film different styles and skaters that are emerging around the country. Yeah, I thought skating was dead. (laughs) It is not. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, this is Tina. It's definitely not dead. And there's a whole other world other than Derby and disco, which is everyone's sort of response when we say we're mo- making a movie about roller skating. And there is, as Deanna said, a very vibrant community. Okay, well, you said it's gone underground. Usually when things go underground, they morph into something. So what has it morphed into? Depends on where you go, in what city. In uh, Chicago, for example, it reflects James Brown so much that their style is called JB. And they do things that would blow your mind. Tina, you want to describe some? <laughs> yeah, this is Tina. It's uh, The JB style is probably the most show-stopping style of all the skate styles. They skate around the rink and then one of the moves is they sort of spin in the air and then land in the splits. Wow. And guys do this as well. <laughs> and it's a real incredible thing to witness a, a whole, you know, mass of people doing it. Wow. Sometimes you'll get like five or six or seven skaters that will like fly full speed and then just body slam onto the rink and then hit the splits and they all start hitting the splits in a row just split 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 it's insane it's kind of like hip-hop meets animating meets gymnastics on wheels but better yeah (laughs) definitely so it's not your it's not your dad's oldsmobile anymore something totally different (laughs) definitely not unless your dad was really really uh, athletic and (laughs) could bring out the moves it sounds pretty incredible (laughs) this is diana these skaters they take it so seriously it's it's really like um an athletic sport for them some of them skate not only seven days a week, but multiple times in a day. They'll leave work with their skates to go skate and then skate all night long until their legs are spasming and they can't actually walk to their cars and they have to sit and ice them down before they leave the ranks. They work so hard at their craft to be as good at it as they are. And um, Tina and I are insanely respectful in um, our humble approaches to learn how to skate with them (laughs) (laughs) yeah and this is tina and just echoing on that um, it's also more than just the sport i mean there is a real sense of community and family within the skate world that's definitely something that really drew us into it because it is really incredible to witness these people coming together whether it's their local skating rink or across the nation at skate jams or skate party weekends but they're all family and as they say in one of our skaters says in, in the uh, the film you know their skates is like their bloodline and that's so true well from your trailer it's a lot of brown people um from your trailer it seems as though uh like they're almost escaping the environment that's around them. Like if there's gang culture or violence in their community, that this is kind of like a neutral ground. This is Diana. I would say that first and foremost, they're a community that's over 10,000 strong and they're really clean. They don't fall into any of the stereotypes that I think someone from the outside may want to perceive them as being when they see a thousand African-Americans all together in one space with nightclub music from midnight to 6 a.m. It is 100% alcohol-free, drug-free, and violence-free. It is remarkable and beautiful and an experience that has moved a lot of people and saved a lot of people by being a part of it. And I think in terms of the communities that the rinks are found in, in terms of the physical location, part of the problem is that it's so expensive to own a rink. 
insurance is so high, rent is、mm. so high, but the economy rinks are closing everywhere, and the only rinks that are, for the most part, able to stay open are. Really far away from large cities and in really impoverished parts of town, where there maybe is more violence or more hardship. But the skaters themselves, most of the time, don't come from those communities. They just drive hours and hours into those communities to find a rink where they can practice what they do. And also, and this is Tina.、Um, there is a real cross section of you know where these skaters are coming from. I mean. You know, a lot of them are successful business owners.、Uh, others are just are struggling. They're living day to day, but they all come together and skate. And it doesn't matter where you're from, as long as you've got your skates on and you're there on the rink. That's that's all that really matters. It's not where you're from; it's where you're at. Yeah.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> and who you are. Now, so you guys went out, documentary filmmakers, and you went out to document the death of an industry, and somehow you were wrong. And so now you're on the trail of of a genesis or some type of rebirth.、Uh, not even a rebirth, but what happened to the industry that you thought was dead? It's still alive, and it's morphed into something totally incredible. You nailed it. Yeah, <laughs> you nailed it. Yeah, I nailed it.、Huh. Sometimes when you have a culture that's kind of underground, or maybe feel is like a little secretive, sometimes there are people who. Don't like that sort of thing, you know. You kind of never like to see someone pass you on the road when you're driving, you know, type of thing. So, are they finding resistance in, toward their culture, this whole skating movement that they've kept alive, that they've gone underground with? And this is Tina. I mean, definitely, with the decline of rinks across the country, it's become harder and harder to, for them to find places where they can skate. And then we have found that in some instances, and we've been told that there are some rink owners that aren't open to the, as they call it, the urban skate night, which、mm. caters to this style of skating, that style of music. Because, as Diana mentioned before, you know, people have preconceived ideas about what this group of African Americans, predominantly African American, you know, people would do when once they're inside their rink, when it's the exact opposite. So, yeah, I mean, they're definitely fighting that、um, on different levels in different cities. I think that's partly this is Diana. Why they also are so welcoming of Tina and I is that they really want people to understand who they are and to be seen for who they are. And you know, like it says in the in the trailer, they're not asking to be understood, but they're asking to be recognized. And if this film can help to break down some of those stereotypes and allow for these most Talented skaters to be welcomed into rinks that they have every right and should be welcomed into. Then, hopefully, Tina and I have done our job. Now, I've never heard of you two ladies before as filmmakers, and that means nothing because it's not <laughs> like I'm a film aficionado. But I say this because I watched your trailer on Kickstarter, and it was incredible. You two are superb at your craft, man. Thank you. Thank you. Now you mentioned about the the JB, the James Brown style, a guy that I that I always wish to honor. Are there any other styles that stand out to you? Oh my goodness, there's so <laughs> many styles. There's a style coming out of DC, Maryland, Baltimore called snapping. That's pretty great. 
Sometimes they do it in a train where they'll all hook arms and weave in and out, and the person on the very end will snap. Or sometimes they do it、um, in partners, and one person kind of is there to balance the other one, and the other one will do really amazing tricks. Squatting down, going through their legs, getting flipped up in the air, but it's always snapping on the beat when you come back, which is why it's called snapping. There's one called striding from Ohio. I knew you were gonna go there. <laughs> I was like striding, say striding. Striding, it's pretty cool. They'll like jump up in the air on their skates and do a 360 and then land, and then the sound when they hit the floor hits it on the beat. So you'll get two or three or four or five skaters land and just. Boom! Right on the beat, and then they start. Sometimes they'll like start body slapping them, like while they're skating and and stomping their feet. Yeah, there's so many. There's Detroit. They'll turn on the sides of their skates and just slide all the way across the floor until you can smell burning rubber in the air. There's fast backwards coming out of Philadelphia, but they do it in a lot of places as well, where they literally go backwards so fast that if you just watch one of the skaters go by, your hair just. <laughs> Goes flying into your face. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that type of movement was over with the death of James Brown and Michael Jackson. You're telling me it's still alive. <laughs> Very much so.、Wow. Very much so. And it's and it's evolving as well. There's new styles or new moves that are being created like every week. So it's it's pretty exciting to witness. So if I go to Kickstarter.com、mm-hmm. and I type in United Skates and I see a trailer and and,、uh, and I'm I'm like wowed by all of it. So everybody go to Kickstarter.com and check it out. United Skates. I'm telling you, it's incredible. But that's not enough for me. This looks like this generation's flash dance or something to me. Will you guys come and bring it all around and teach me even more than I expected? So I just want to say hats off and thank you very much. No offense to flash dance, but I hope it's a little bit cooler. <laughs> I can't go there. No disrespect to flash dance. I can't、yeah. go there. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Yeah. On this week's segment. Of meet the crowd. Our topic is branding, and our expert is none other than Max Dugan, the president of Dugan Media. Max, welcome. Now, your industry is branding. Like, how did you get started down this road, anyway? I mean, it seems as though branding is kind of a, it's kind of a weird business. Sort of, kind of like advertising, but sort of, kind of not. Sort of, kind of like. Used car salesman, you know, like I am, but sort of, kind of not. So, how did you get down this path? The way I got into branding, which is what I do, is through radio. And the reason I think that's good is because radio is not a tangible thing. It's not a car or an iPhone or computer or sport coat or anything that you know. It's an idea, and that's what branding really is: is, is to try to convey an idea. Beyond the product or beyond the thing, I keep saying on the show, or I've said on the show at times, that I believe that branding or marketing is half the battle. You know, if you can get that right, so many other things just seem to flow from there. And yeah, I work with the crowdfunding community, the Kickstarter community. If I were to come to you with like an idea, like a raw idea, and I want to put it up on Kickstarter. Do you have like a couple things that you might tell me? A little bit of advice, maybe to just just clear it all up because there's so many things that I would potentially be working on all at the same time to bring this product in front of the public. 
Yeah, and I think your perspective on that is interesting because what I would do is I wouldn't tell you anything, but I would ask you a lot of questions and try to get to a couple of fundamental truths, which is not the attributes specifically of what your product or your thing is, but I'd ask you what the ideas around your product or service or ideas are. So what brought you to it? What do you hope to accomplish? And and that sort of thing, and try to get to the truth of what it is besides the thing. I'm trying to find out maybe is there a book? Are there cliff notes to branding? Is is there a checklist that you could go through? It's just a short one to get you kind of on your way? Or would you just recommend come see me? <laughs> you know? uh, right. right. So, yeah, so you say, well, here's what you need to do to get a good brand. Right. First, get a good brand. Right. And so that doesn't work. Right? So I hear your question. Right. I don't know if there's a shortcut, but there's a process. There's certainly a process you can go through and you can say, okay, you know, I have a widget and it does this. And it's good because it fills a hole, and you can look at it as what's the product, right? The product fills a hole. It's unique in the marketplace and has these attributes. Okay, so now we're talking about your product, but we're not talking about your brand. So now I would ask you, what are the values? Let's try to get to this essence. What are the values of your brand? What is it? Unique might be a piece of it that is part of the brand. Innovation might be part of the brand right, which is not necessarily the product. We're talking about innovation, and we're talking about maybe a uniquely innovative product. And so I would go down this road with you, or I would suggest people go down that road and and sort of try to strip away exactly the uniqueness of the product or the attributes of the product and try to get to the fundamental thing that it solves. Like if it solves a problem, right, Now you can start to talk about the brand attributes, that it's innovative, it's unique, it solves a problem. And then you can kind of put these kinds of things on a sort of a board and say, this is my brand, and this is what my brand stands for. And so say I had did this exercise and I got to 10 things. This is what my brand is. Now you can design your messaging not just about your product attributes, but around your brand attributes. Does that make any sense? Okay, for example, on Kickstarter right now, there's an arms race going on in 3D technology. Like everybody's trying to bring the the most handy, the smallest, or the cheapest 3D scanner to market where it it can just scan 3D images from from whatever. It could be a building, it could be a room, and it could render this. And then, you know, I see some people, they start out at $1,000, and one person this this month has come on with one. $400, $400, 3D scanner, printer, and, and it just keeps going on. So you're saying first you have the, the product, but then you got to get down to the attributes before you can build the message. That's well said, and I think that's exactly right, actually. And I think a good question to ask differentiating products from brand, if you ask yourself what does it do, you're probably talking about your product. If you ask yourself, how does it make me feel when I use it, you're probably talking about the brain. Oh, I got you. Okay, well then, to take that in context, I want to sell my jeans on Kickstarter because most gene companies, you know, this hypothesis, because most gene companies, their jeans are just kind of throwaway. You know, you wash them a couple times, they're not really good, but I'm going to guarantee my jeans for 10 years or more. 
and they're going to last and we're going to give you a lifetime, you know, during that 10 years lifetime, whatever. If something goes wrong, we'll take them back. We'll mend them. We'll send them back to you. Customer service is going to be our type of brand loyalty, the thing that we put out there ahead of the competition. Would that work? Um, now, let's say you are on the right track from product to brand, but I don't think you're there. But I think you're on the right track because, as I said earlier, I think what you want, the question you want to answer is, when I put on those jeans, how do I feel? Oh. So the fact that they're going to last long is good. That's a product attribute. The fact that they're handmade is now a product attribute, but I feel, I might feel good that they're handmade. So I would go down the road with you on this and say, okay, what is it that I feel when I put on those jeans? My jeans are, I have the 10-year warranty. Also, my jeans are made in a non-sweatshop environment, so you can feel good that these people who are, who are laboring to make your jeans are being treated well and paid fairly and helping to sustain their community as well as ours by giving you, the customer, a very good price, but also making sure that these people aren't kind of like in virtual slavery and that they're going to be able to pull themselves up too. So it's kind of a, a um, it takes a village type of approach. And I think that's excellent. And I think now you're talking brand. Absolutely. Because when I put on those jeans and when I buy those jeans, I am supporting a worldview. Your worldview now about how you make your jeans is consistent with my worldview about how I want to live my life, right? Yeah. I don't want to exploit people. I don't want to take advantage. I want people to be treated well around the world. And so this is how I feel, right? Now, we're not, right. this is not the genes. I feel about this. This is the way you're about the world. And they make me so feel can, good. That's right. And they make me feel good physically when I put them on. Right. So now when I buy your jeans, I get the jeans and they last long and I've got a 10-year warranty, but I'm supporting my worldview by buying your jeans. And now I've bought your brand, not just your product. Okay. That's not bad. I thought we were going in circles there for a while, but you kind of straightened it out. Well, I, I'm trying. <laughs> You're trying. We're both trials like, man, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this chess game. <laughs> <laughs> it is a little bit that way. Brand can be a slippery slope, right? It is. It can be. I noticed another thing that you said, though, that was very interesting. You said earlier in the conversation or you said in the conversation that you put these points up on one side of the board, literally. And then you go to fill in, you know, the points about the product. But then you go to the board to fill in the points that might be about the brand. To me, it just felt um, important that you mentioned the board, some place where you can have all these ideas, but organize them instead of just maybe talking about it over and over and having to rehash over and over. No, I think that's a good point. And I think uh, in some ways, maybe that's why these conversations can get into a circle. So we literally create some architecture to break the circle and say this side of the room is brand and that side of the room is product. And so when we put up an attribute or we talk about something, we go, okay, that's the product and it does this. And we go, wait, that's the brand and it makes me feel that way. And literally in a physical space, you can say the left side of the room is product, the right side of the room is brand. And it literally then becomes geometrically and physically clear to you the difference between the two and easier to talk about because it's very conceptual. How many years have you been at this? For about 25 years. That's a lifetime. That's a yeah. generation. Yeah, a long time. You probably didn't even prepare for this. You're just going off the cuff, I bet. Freestyle even. I'm riffing with you. 
Dear Grandpa Griffin. <laughs> now, if someone wanted to reach you, they had questions, they were like, man, I like that Dugan guy. I think he might be an actual expert. How did they contact you? How did they get in touch with you? I'm going to give you a real simple email, and it's my name, Max Dugan, M-A-X, D-U-G-A-N, and that's maxdugan at comcast.net. Drop me a line, and I will do what I can to help you. Max, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you, dear Grandpa. My daughters, who are suckers for incredible art, fell in love with the League of Monsters project. So I called up the husband and wife team, Kevin and Nikki, to find out more. Hello, DJ Grandpa here. <laughs> How's it going? How's it going in Utah? Going pretty good. You finished all those paintings yet? That's a lot of work. My husband and I were hard at work for months, but we finished. My children thought that was pretty impressive that you did the hand painting instead of just all generated by computers. Oh, thank you. Am I supposed to be talking to you or both of you? Would you like to talk to my husband? He's right here. I'm just trying to make sure I get all the names straight and all of that, you know. I'm Nikki. I'm Kevin's wife. We both painted the paintings for the deck. We've been doing art full-time for about three years, just supporting our family off of it. Uh, This is the first turn we've done with something as, you know, like a deck of cards or or a combined effort. And you guys are on Kickstarter with the League of Monster Playing Cards. Did you guys try and specifically bring it out because, you know, Halloween's right around the corner? It was convenient timing, but my husband started painting Frankensteins about a year ago and fell in love with it. So it's something that he was working on regardless of the timing. And we decided to launch it right before Halloween just because of that. But that's not the reason why we decided to paint it. I believe I saw that you said that you didn't have a video on Kickstarter. And everybody knows that I'm a Kickstarter video addict. But you guys chose not to do a video. Being full-time artists, we don't have all the computer equipment and all the electronic equipment that a lot of other people doing those projects have. And we don't have a lot of money to have access to those things. So we just had a friend, Brian Lee, do all of our Kickstarter editing for the Photoshop right. part of it. But as far as equipment and cameras and all that, man, we just don't have any of it. So we thought we would let our art do the talking for us. <laughs> now, what have people been saying about it, though? Oh, I think we have a mixed review out there. There's people who like to stick to the traditional computer-generated type cards, and they're a bit critical. And then there's others who think it's ambitious that we painted all the cards by hand, and they think it's a pretty cool thing. And, you know, the paintings themselves are really big. They're two feet by three feet, and so they're pretty cool if you get looking at all the details in them. And you guys are selling those off, too. We thought they would make some pretty cool wall hangings if anybody has a game room or storefront or anything. You know, and if they don't sell, my husband would love to have them himself. So, (laughs) (laughs) they don't sell. (laughs) You guys just changed your picture. Yes. (laughs) A second ago, I was on it and the picture was something else. (laughs) And now I'm looking at it, trying to, you know, stay relevant, and the picture's changed again. No, that's it. He just changed it. 
a little while ago. All right, I'm, I'm just checking, man. I don't, I don't like to feel like I'm crazy or something, but that's a nice picture, man. I wouldn't mind having that Frankenstein right there, the King of Spades. That's the cool one. Thank you. Appreciate that. I like it because the colors are darker. Yeah. So what what's it about you guys? Are you um do you have any children? Are you like an artistic family? You keep it all in the family, all of that sort of stuff? We have a three year old, a two year old, and an eight month old. So they finger paint it up while we're doing our other stuff on the side. <laughs> are they artistic or they have no talent at all? Because sometimes it skips a generation, you know. <laughs> oh well, they're definitely artistic okay. for us. As artistic as little tiny children can be. <laughs> okay. Is there anything else you would like to tell me about these cards here? Because we're not really supposed to be talking about our families and all of that. We're supposed <laughs> to be really getting down to kickstart a business and telling people right. what inspired you to do such a thing. Why would you do it anyway? You know, I am all following my husband's footsteps on this one. It was his idea. It was his baby from the beginning. Like I said, he fell in love with painting Frankenstein about a year ago, and he painted hundreds of Frankenstein paintings. And one of them happened to be the king of a deck of cards. And then, you know, he went from there. Hey, why? what if we paint a whole deck of cards? This would be so cool. So we did it. We went for it. And whose idea to bring it to Kickstarter? That would be my husband. What's wrong with him? <laughs> What's wrong with him? Yeah. He's so smart. <laughs> I'm not saying he's not smart. I'm just saying he's coming up with all these ideas, like half-baked or whatever, and then he runs off on some sort of tangent. You just followed the dude? You didn't ask him any <laughs> questions? I have no choice. <laughs> he was dedicated, so I oh, was there. Oh, <laughs> he's one of the domineering type. I, I get you. I get you. Where's the wife beater t-shirts and stuff like that? I get you. <laughs> He's kindly aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> Lovingly aggressive. <laughs> okay, I got you. I got you. So so let me make sure this this card deck, are there any other monsters than Frankenstein? Or is, are they all just Frankenstein? There's the bride of Frankenstein and there's the swamp creature. Right. There's Nosferatu, which was the first vampire for Dracula. And there's the mummy. And let me think. There was another one on the Joker. Oh, Wolfman. Your husband's, I think he's taking this Frankenstein thing a little too close to heart, but it does look good, so there's nothing I can really criticize him about, though. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Since you obviously can't say anything to him, do you want me to talk to him for you? Let me put him on. Yes. Put him on. All right, here he is. Hello? It's Kevin. I know, with a C. Kevin with a C. It's very unique, yes. Right, that's very unique. I've never seen that before, but it does work. <laughs> All right, now I hear you're obsessed on these monsters, especially Frankenstein. Yes. What a direction you've led your family in for the last year. The last year? Yes, it seems like an obsession to you. I lost my job in California about four years ago. Yeah. And uh, we said, all right, let's pack up and go. You know, we don't have any family out here anyway. So we had a yard sale. We had about 200 canvases that people were literally fighting over wow. that we just had in piles. And we probably had 100 people tell us, you guys should start a business doing paintings. And we were like, who would want my orange abstract paintings? Because I was painting really bright colors. So right, right. the next day we started a Facebook page and it wasn't even 24 hours later, somebody from Virginia had found us through a friend of a friend on Facebook and bought one of our paintings. So 
Wow. We've been doing it ever since. So you guys paint out of love and frustration and all of that. Yes. That's a good story, man. I thought this story was going to go in a different direction, man. You are <laughs> tricky. She said you were very smart and tricky, twisty. <laughs> yeah, well, we're very two hardworking people that, uh, you know, it's very hard. It's kind of the old school American dream, you know, do what you love and make a living doing it. So we're giving it a try. Right. I'm sorry about you lost your job, sir. You know, it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. I just wanted to meet you and I wanted to say um, thanks for putting this project on Kickstarter. All hand painted playing cards because I've seen a thousand projects on Kickstarter get funded <laughs> where people just sit in front of a computer and you see them doodling on the computer and designing the cards for you. But this is different. This is all hand crafted, painted by this lovely family and their children making painting by finger or whatever numbers at the same time so go to kickstarter.com and check out league of monster playing cards and if you can't find it there it's so close to halloween why not go to djgrandpa.com and we'll provide links for these two well for this entire nice family <laughs> tell your wife i said thanks and Kevin. i will thank you we appreciate it very much Hey there, Kickstarter and world at large. I am Andy Timoner. I'm a documentary filmmaker, best known probably for Dig and We Live in Public, both of which won the Grand Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival. Since I was 19 years old and picked up a camera, I've been training it on visionaries who can't help but do what they do and do it against all odds. Hello. I'm here to talk to you today. How are you? are you? Is this a live thing? No, I'm not ready for prime time. So no, we're not live. <laughs> I'm not like you. I'll be the judge of that after this session. I'm thinking you're trouble, but I like that. I'm trouble. I qualify. I just knew you were going to uh, say no. I've been trouble since I was born. Well, It's yeah. just the cool thing is when you grow up, if you do lots of good, productive things in the world, the trouble turns into a blessing for the world, right? When I listened to you on Kickstarter, I wanted to know, do you consider yourself a filmmaker first, a citizen journalist, uh, a journalist? What? No. You know? I consider myself a um, cultural anthropologist more than anything. Okay. Like a studier of people and the times we live in and the people that drive those times or that are affecting or shaping those times. And you talk about revolution. I think we're in one, don't you? I don't know. I mean, every time I turn around, someone's telling me I'm in a revolution. We're in a revolution. I bet if we did like a measurement and we saw like the people that see that around them, are probably also people that appreciate life more than most other people who are like, whatever, you know? Right. I think uh, any any time in history they could have and did claim that they were in a revolution. However, I think we can clearly look back in history and say, okay, the Industrial Revolution was a major shift. It affected everyone's lives. The printing press before that, you know, I mean, the socio-political economic climate of the world right. shifted radically as a result of the Industrial Revolution. And I wager that this time in history is, is the next massive shift. And it's beautiful. I mean, 60s, right. I grew up thinking, damn, I missed the 60s. I was born too late. I was right. born in 1972, and I wish people gave a crap. I wish they cared. You know, I wish they cared, and I wish they... I wish there was something to fight against, like there was in the 60s. It seems like everybody's just half asleep in the 90s, you know, when I was... Right. 
going to college and so forth. And and I'm happy to to know now that I am living through an extremely special time. It just at that point when I was growing up, it wasn't particularly special. The internet hadn't been fully realized yet, but the internet has created the greatest shift I think in our history. And so it's a beautiful time to be alive. And you and I talk to people on a regular basis about them building their dreams, about them kind of chucking everything that was before and reaching out to achieve something that's new. And they thank God for platforms and portals and social media and all of that. I mean, you do it on a much bigger scale. You know, I'm, I'm just this little small dude. But how does it make you feel to just just to be, a, you know, you, you and I are like the most, you know, I call myself sometimes the most famous fly on the wall. Because I get to hear all of these things. That's the thing, is that by the very sake of what I'm doing, the way that I'm doing it, but right. the spirit that I'm doing it, I'm also one of them. Like, for example, I've been a startup entrepreneur for 21 years, because ever since I started making independent films, I've been having to sell people on my vision, scale my vision, put teams together. All the things that they go through, and you know, that they challenges they face in, in realizing their ideas into reality, I have to deal with that all the time. And so I relate to them on that level. But then also the way that we're actually doing this, the fact that a feature doc filmmaker, a person who has, you know, been recognized for achievements in, you know, feature documentary storytelling, right? Goes and says, forget about it. I'm gonna just <laughs> I'm not making any promises of making a feature film right now. I'm making a series of series, an interactive portal, a database that you can search. Everyone, you know, 40% of America in arguably the world, they say will be out of a job and replaced by computers. I want to give you all the knowledge, wisdom, and the inspiration that you can go and make your own dream happen. As much as this is a scary time, this is the most exciting time, the opportunity has been democratized, and here is an example of, you know, this person that you can relate to, and that person. I'm going to humanize these stories and give you the tools. And if I sit around and, and wait and make a documentary in a quiet way that me and my colleagues always have in the past, I'm not going to be able to accomplish a higher goal, right? Right. That's more important to the world. So I'm going to do that. And that was a big leap for me to take. Like, that wasn't... Not to arrive at it seemed quite natural. However, as I started to plan a Kickstarter for it, it was like, now what are you doing, Andy? You know, and the fact that it's succeeded and 150% funded doesn't mean that I'm now able to sit back. I sat around with line producers the other night and they said, for what you want to accomplish, minimum $350,000. So I've challenged everybody to think with me a little bit outside the box, and I'm right. showing. If I pull this off, I'm going to actually show my community, my storytelling community, that they can create a sustainable business and be part of a flow that now exists that did not exist prior and really be like in an interactive exchange of ideas and culture with the world as they become a PhD. They can empower their audiences to become PhDs. They can do all this, and I will show them how. So in a way, like, I am innovating that stuff just along with the innovators. And, and, and then the innovators, right, they're really excited, the tech innovators, because right. they're like, oh, my God, somebody's finally come along. And you could see if you watch the updates on my Kickstarter and how much they support me, some major founders of some of the most influential sites on the Internet have backed this campaign, you know. 
And the reason why they backed it is because they're like, finally, somebody's come along who's actually telling our story, right. who's not telling like just how much money we raised or that we IPO'd at this or some financial tech news that the tech portals all focus on. Somebody's coming along and saying, this is this incredible time, and here are these invisible superheroes who are designing your world, and here's what they're going through. And show them as the humans that they are. Well, you bring me to this then. I mean, on my show, I made a decision from the beginning, you know, that I don't get into, like I want to say to you right now, congratulations on reaching your minimum funding. And, you know, you were successful. You were like 150% funded. But I don't go into the financial numbers because it just seemed in poor taste. And it feels like it would have made the show bigger faster if I had done that. You know, like if I would like such and such raised $200,000 in 48 hours. But it just, it's not the right feel <laughs> for what I want. Right, right. right. Well, it's not what you're trying to accomplish. Right. It's and, not what you want people to focus on. It's not about the money. That's the other thing that is really important for people to know about Kickstarter and Indiegogo and all this. It's not about the money. It's about the message, and it's right. about the community. It's about the group, the team that forms, the team of my backers, my 903 teammates, you know, plus my interlopers, my teammates here at home. You're a twice Sundance documentary winner. I mean, did that change your career? I know it's a stupid question because I know it had to, but did it? I made the movies, but... There's no better place for a documentary filmmaker to premiere their film than Sundance, period. End of story. It's the only festival in the world that opens with the documentary category, right? And the catalog, they appreciate the documentary form. They always have. And the best documentaries in the world premiere at Sundance. So if you win that competition, you're, you know, you're off to the races, basically. And it's great. So that's a beautiful thing. So thank you, Sundance. Yes. <laughs> in more ways than one. I mean, you know, I made Dig, and I was giving birth to my son the same week I finished it, and that was no coincidence. I was like, I can't bring this rock saga into motherhood, and and uh, and then two weeks later, I'm learning how to breastfeed, and the phone rings, and it's Sundance, and they're like, Hey, we'd love to uh, have your film in competition at the festival, and it's like. I didn't know even what that meant, but I said, okay, and then I ended up in front of exactly what I had hoped to avoid happened, and I was in front of the avid, you know, breastfeeding with one hand, and I had edited the film, and so I had my hand on the mouse with the other, and 11 weeks old, me and my newborn son fly to Sundance, and I'm breastfeeding, you know, popping him off the breast and answering Q&As, and next thing I know, we win Sundance, and he's been in... 17 countries by the time he was two, you know, right. and over 150 airplanes, and he's like a human experiment. And then I won again when he was five. It right. also kept my feet on the ground to have a baby at the exact same time that my career exploded, you know, because um, I didn't go and go off and drink and party with everybody else. I went home and had a glass of champagne and breastfed, you know. <laughs> so, you know, it was kind of a, a different way to go. In terms of my career, it's been a beautiful thing. I mean, Dig is like uh, the gift that keeps giving in the way that people see me and, and my work. Musicians and artists everywhere love that film so much because I didn't go to film school or anything. In fact, I was rejected from UCLA and NYU, I believe. Right. Those two places I applied. So if you're rejected from film school out there, folks, just don't worry about it. It's probably a blessing. <laughs> It'll save some money. Just go make films, you know. 
I worked for a decade on one of the films, We Live in Public, and seven years on Dig, you know, these two films that won. The reason they won is because they were shot over a long period of time, and time provides a great narrative, and they were very suspense-driven, and they're very amazing stories, and they're amazing looking, and they're amazing feeling, and they're good films. You know, that's why they won Sundance. See, that's another thing I love about you. What? You're totally into your own promotions. I like that. You're totally confident. What did I say? That I earned those prizes? Yeah, that's Oh, right. I did earn those prizes. Yeah. Oh, shoot. You know what? This is a call from Canada. Okay, about a missing About a missing battery that I need to shoot a show tonight. I love you. You take care and stay in touch. Okay, I will. I'm going to email you. Okay, okay. bye. Twitter. Bye-bye. I'd like to thank all our guests. I'd also like to thank our listeners. Each week, we couldn't do it without you guys. A special thanks goes out to Trevor Williams and to my mentor, The Mumbler, for providing music to DJ Grandpa's Crip. Thanks to Jeffrey Banks and Bertram Zeke, our assistant editors. Until next week, so say we all. The homepage for DJ Grandpa's Crib is djgrandpa.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, DJ Grandpa's Crib, all one word. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Von Rupert. The executive producer of this and all Bedrock Communications podcasts is AF Rupert. Thank you.